1: to Nature Biotechnology's First Rounders Podcast. My name is Brady Huggett. I am the host of this show, and the guest today is Grace Colon. She is the president and CEO of Encarta Therapeutics. She is one of those people that you sometimes find in this industry that has a vast breadth of knowledge about biotech. She, uh, after her PhD, she worked for a consultancy. She's worked for large companies, small companies. She has started up companies. She has worked in venture capital her experience touches just almost all corners of this industry. What did we discuss? We talked about her growing up in Puerto Rico, this tropical island, as she calls it. We talked about her time at MIT, which she just loved. It sort of helped set her on the path toward entrepreneurship. We talked about her deep love of musical theater. That was a surprise. I did not see that coming. And we also talked about the, the great bloat that you'll find in our healthcare system, and the ways that small companies, small biotechs can maybe chop away at some of those inefficiencies. We talked about that. Anything else? I think you're ready to go. So here it is your first Rounders podcast with Grace Cologne. Listen up. Yeah. I
0: just got it in the last couple of weeks because I've actually been recording. Um, I do musical theater performance, so I've been doing some Zoom stuff. You do? <laughs> Yeah. Oh, that's amazing. Well, not much anymore. I'm trying to get back into it. I did a lot of musical theater at MIT and I've sung off and on over the years, just informally. And so right now I'm recording a song with five, four other biotech women. Uh, it's a one minute song from a musical theater thing with a five part harmony. So, and then I, have I did a zoom audition class. And so I'm preparing some things and actually have a YouTube channel now with some of my performances, which I'm not going to share with you
1: right I, now. This is already, this is being recorded. Should I not, should I have to cut this out? This is the <laughs> no, best stuff I've heard.
0: No, 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 it's fine. We can, however you want to, whatever you want to cover, I'm ready. Right. I know. We'll, when, we'll, we'll get yeah. back
1: to that because I want to.
0: No, there, You and know. there's a in... lot of biotech people in bands. I keep on finding people who either play instruments or sing or perform in some way. Um, I think we're a very outspoken uninhibited group of people. <laughs>
1: I mean, you wouldn't think so, though. Most people think scientists are pretty buttoned up, but I found that not to be the case, actually.
0: That's not the case. Some of the craziest, most fun people were all my colleagues and classmates at MIT. So. <laughs> wow. Um, so I was
1: looking through, you know, your sort of long history and I, I'm like, there's no way we're going to be able to cover all this. There's just so many different angles. But I, th- I mean, I feel like we should start at Penn. But. Sure. But I also I also want to like, how did you even get to Penn? How did you think that? you know, that you want to go to a school like that and you want to study um, chemical engineering. Was there science in your, in your youth?
0: Yes, there was science, a lot of science in my youth. I mean, I grew up in, in San Juan, Puerto Rico, and I was surrounded just the, the sensory overload of growing up on a tropical island. So in a couple of ways, right. One is the beach. You know, we were never far from a beach. Puerto Rico is about a hundred miles long, about 30, 35 miles wide. So you're never far from a beach and you're never far from rainforest. Yeah. And so from a young age, even in our backyard, we lived in a house um, that was actually owned by a longtime Puerto Rican family that owned a lot of land. And we lived there because my father ran one of their plants, such as dairy plant. And our backyard was filled with iguanas and birds and huge bugs and trees and lush greenery. So from a young age, I'd go outside and play. We had a bunch of German shepherds. And I'd spend hours out there climbing trees and looking at leaves and, you know, chasing iguanas and picking up worms and just from a young age. And then I'd go to the beach and would be snorkeling. And I'd be, you know, so just science. And then the nighttime, you know, I would visit local islands and there's no light. So you could see the stars and the Milky Way and I'd stare at the stars. So really a, a, a youth that was just filled with with uh, childhood and youth f- filled with science. And then, of course, I was—I loved science and math in school. Um, but interestingly enough, both my grandfathers on both sides were engineers. So on my dad on my dad's side, his father was a chemical engineer, which is eventually what I ended up studying. And yeah. my father didn't study engineering; he studied animal husbandry, and he went to to the mainland to study that, which is where he met my mom. But he was an engineer. You know, some people are just engineers. Doesn't matter what they study; they have that mindset and that brain. And my dad definitely was that. And then his dad, who I never met because he died in a car crash in the mountains of Puerto Rico uh, before I was born, I was the youngest oh. of five, and I never got to meet him. But he was a chemical engineer, and he had eight kids. My dad was the sixth, and he ran um, large sugarcane um, sort of processing plants and 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 farms. Basically, sugarcane was a huge interest industry in Puerto Rico. So, several of his kids studied either agriculture or animal husbandry. And, um, you know, he's a chemical engineer. And I still have his chemical engineering handbook, it's like second edition. I have it um, that was handed down to me. And then my uh, grandfather on my mother's side, um, uh, she grew up in New Orleans. He was an electrical engineer who graduated from Tulane. And he, he was involved with NOPSI, which is the New Orleans or New Orleans sort of public service, you know, electrical um utilities grid. right and he yeah. helped build the grid in new orleans um you know starting in the in the 20s you know when he graduated and he met my grandmother who also worked at nopsy who had graduated from newcomb uh you know was captain of her field hockey team you know not many women went to college and she went to college she studied latin and english and uh, captain of her field hockey team and um they met what's, and what's newcomb yeah. Oh, it was it was sort of like the 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 female side of of Tulane. It was the sister oh, okay, group, right oh, okay okay like yeah. yeah, 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 and so, um anyway, so he was an engineer. The point was he was an engineer, so I would go visit them in the summers, and he had all his engineering textbooks and chemistry, and I was a very geeky kid, as you could tell, uh, still am, and um, you know, he talked about engineering and he talked about and he loved building things. He built a house in the mountains in North Carolina we used to go visit. And, um, so I was surrounded no matter, I couldn't escape it. Right. I I loved science and engineering. So growing up in Puerto Rico, um, there's a great engineering school on the island in Mayagüez, but I really wanted to go to the mainland. I, you know, I felt like I wanted to go out and see the world, and um, because
1: because you'd been going back and forth, you've been going to New Orleans this to, see to your visit, parents. yeah, to yeah. visit, right? Yeah. So I
0: had uh, a lot of cousins, you know, on my mom's side and and aunts and uncles, and then a lot of um, obviously my island family, most of whom, the vast majority, were on the island, um, and it was just great, great place to grow up. You know, happy to talk more about that, but the point is, yeah. On the Penn side, um, I, I applied to, you know, some engineer. It wasn't like today where you apply to twenty schools. I only applied to a handful. Yeah. I had done well in school and had a lot of extracurriculars, and um, you know, Penn attracted me a lot of. There was a large Puerto Rican population, sort of in my community, who ended up going to Penn. And what I loved about it was it was. So it's like the only school I can think of that has everything, you know, dental school, nursing school, business, um, law, uh, medical. It's rare to find that all in one place. And I also had a lot of other interests, had a great romance language department. So I studied French and Italian, did a, um, a semester abroad in France. You know, the engineering school had that uh, available to it. Not a lot of engineering schools oh do. God. And so I, I, and I visited the campus and it was sort of, you know, growing up in Puerto Rico, the U S is so different. It's like a culture shock. And it was sort of classic what I had seen in the movies, A beautiful campus, yeah. you know, I, I would visit and everybody's outside partying. It's a very different kind of environment, right? Than I, than I grew up with, um, you know, the big old buildings and, and all of that. And I, I just fell in love with the campus. My other choice was MIT and I got in, um, but I had been there for a program that they had for high school students. Uh, for minorities, um, you know, Black, Latino, um, Native American, and it was an engineering program that was uh, lasted. Of, I can't remember it was three or four weeks. It's still in place today. I talked to the the one the person who runs the program recently. She came to visit me at my company, and phenomenal program. So I did. I I went there between junior and senior years in high school, and what, in just, the summer or something. In the summer, it just. Blew my mind away. Spent, uh, you know, three or four weeks living on campus. I think it was four weeks. Yeah. Living on campus and taking courses, doing civil engineering, doing English, writing for scientists, um, math, physics. Fell in love with it and really fell in love with MIT. But I don't know how I knew this when I was 16. When I got into both places, I said, I'm coming back for grad school. I'm coming to back to MIT oh. and I don't know, I don't know how I knew I even wanted to go to grad school as a 16 year old. Um, but uh, you know, cause I was like 16, I sort of an October birthday. So I was 17 when I graduated. Um, but I did, I somehow said Penn is perfect for undergrad. It'll be more well-rounded. It'll be, which actually is, is not necessarily true. MIT is incredibly well-rounded, but that was sort of my impression. And I ended up, I did end up going back to MIT yeah. for my PhD, but Penn was, was a phenomenal place. Um, the engineering school was tops and, um, you know, had all the experience It was everything I wanted to be in particular, doing research. So I, um, did work, study, had a lot of student loans. My parents didn't have a lot of means. So, um, a lot of my uh, classmates would, uh, you know, go work in dining services or work somewhere else, perfectly respectable right. to earn money to pay for work study but I wanted a research job. So I, I applied for a couple of research jobs and I got one as a freshman in the dental school department of microbiology. And I started working on oral bacteria. And so I was working uh, you know, with um, uh, all kinds of bacteria. I was doing genetic engineering. I was working with, um, you know, corn cob forming bacteria, um, strep huh. infusobacterium. I was doing all this stuff and it, it just fell in love with it. Absolutely fell in love with research. And I, you know, it was tough because I had, you know, very heavy curriculum and engineering and everything. And then I would, uh, after classes, I would go to lab for several hours and then, come back, have dinner, and then work on problem sets all night and get up and do it all again. And, you know, I'd come back in the afternoon and my roommates who were majoring in, you know, English or whatever, you know, great curriculum at Penn, but they were done for the day and they were off yeah. partying <laughs> and yeah. I was just getting started on my homework, but, um, but, it, but loved it, absolutely loved it. And that love of research really propelled me. And then I did a, a research project with Doug Laufenberger and one of his grad students at, when he was at Penn. And then, uh, you know, just so I did, I worked in dental school and in in the chemical engineering department, and it just kind of sealed my fate. I said, okay, I love labs. I love research. There's so much to learn. There's so much exciting new technology. I definitely want to do this. Um, And so I ended up, uh, you know, having that research experience, which allowed me to apply for an NSF grant, then which I won for grad school. Um, But then uh, in my junior year at Penn, I was able to do this exchange program with the Université Technologie Compiègne in France about an hour north of Paris. And I fell in love with France. <laughs> I didn't learn as much as I should have when I was there. And I oh. somehow knew I wanted to go back. I
1: mean, you know? but you just living there, you're learning on a daily basis, hmm. just living in another country, right? I mean, that's such a part of growing, really.
0: Oh, it was phenomenal. And I, and I you know, being a native Spanish speaker, it's my first language as much as English is. Um, it was great not too hard to learn French. I t- took a bunch of advanced courses at Penn and then immersed as a student. Um, I became quite fluent and even slang and all of that. And, you know, had a lot of fr- friends from there and then ended up spending the summer hiking in the Pyrenees and camping out and almost not coming back. <laughs> and then um, I did come back, got an internship at Merck and Raleigh back when Raleigh was in the, the headquarters and then um decided I'm going to put off grad school for a year and go back to France. Oh. I don't know why I did that, but I did. I said, I can always come back. Um, Merck had a plant in the in the middle of nowhere in France in a little town called Aprix, and um the plant manager I worked for was a real champion for me and and was able to make connections there and they they had a position for me to go back and be environmental engineer. Um, so I took a year off and went and worked in France, um, but that didn't start till like January of that year. So I moved to Paris with a friend of mine and walked into the Pasteur Institute to try to find a short-term internship and was able to find one with one of the leading researchers there for three months. So, you know, I worked in Paris as a researcher at the Pasteur Institute for three months before going off to, um, to Merck. I mean, you you seriously walked in and said, Hey, I'm I'm here for a few months. Can I,
1: how can I... And they said yes to that.
0: It was crazy. I mean, this is before internet, before anything. I don't know how we got stuff done back then. I literally, it's like, a, I can't remember how we did these things. But I had a little resume I'd printed out that showed, you know, I graduated from Penn. I had done all this research. I had the Merck internship. I had, you know, several different, I had papers published and genetic engineering. And this was the... Uh, It was the Departement de Recombinaison Genétique or something like that, you know, Genetic Engineering Department. Pierre Thiolet was the name of the head of the department, I remember. And he was doing um, hepatitis B research in in transgenic mice. And he had me work with a postdoc. And I just walked in and I said, here's my resume. Do you have any, you know, short-term positions? And they had funding and they could always use an extra hand. And I seemed like I wasn't a complete idiot. So he said, sure.
1: And I'm like, well, is it
0: paid? And yeah, it was five thousand francs a month, which was nothing, but you know. Well,
1: still, yeah.
0: But the, I'm, I'm so
1: like, why do you think that that happens? Just because there's a tendency of people to want to help bright young people who are making their way, or or what? I mean, when you uh, yeah. say you can only have me for three months, and they go, yeah, we'll we'll give you money to to yeah. you know.
0: They cannot. I mean, when I got to the lab, I realized they could use extra hands. I mean, having been in labs myself as a grad student, you know, we'd have undergraduate researchers come in, you know, dying to add to their resume, get some experience. And there's always stuff to do. There's always like, you know, things, the repetitive experiments you need to do. And if if they look like they've had some experience, you know, he knew his postdoc needed some help. And they said, you know, if she's done all this, graduated from a decent school, you know, what can it hurt, right? Worse, they waste a little time training her and it's not a lot of money. Um, and, and frankly, yeah, there's got to be a spirit of generosity and mentoring. Because yeah. otherwise, why would you bother? It's kind of a hassle to take somebody on for a couple months. To train so, them.
1: Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And, yeah, But, you yeah. know, as
0: a young person, you don't think that. You're like, oh, I'm so great. Give me a job. You know, <laughs> I'll work hard. And, and really, really. I've, and look at my French. Isn't my French good, you know?
1: Yeah. <laughs> Well, they I did I mean, it all were... in
0: French. I spoke to him in French and said, you know, je m'appelle, blah, blah, blah. And, you know,
1: you were right, though. Yeah. I mean, well, you... I know. well they didn't regret it, I'm sure.
0: Yeah. I mean, hopefully I contributed. I mean, you can't do much in three months, but I remember I, I did, you know, advance some little pieces of the research that was helpful. Or so what? So they told me. <laughs> um, I want to ask this, too,
1: going way back. But so your, because your father had come to the U.S., you said, too. To For, for yeah. school, right? So that's yeah, another reason school. where you're like, okay, well, then this is kind of how the pattern goes. I mean.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, the difference is he went, you know, um, he married my mom. They lived in Louisiana, but then they ended up going back and forth. So I'm one of five and my my oldest sister was born in Lafayette. So they went to school in Lafayette, what is now yeah. the the University of Louisiana Lafayette, I think the name changed over the years. Um, at one point it was University of Southwestern Louisiana, you know, great school, Um several of my relatives either went there or to LSU and actually my three sisters went, all went to USL undergrad. So when I applied to schools, um, they, my parents wanted to keep me down South near the family. And they said, okay, if you must go to the mainland and you want to study engineering, we understand USL might not be the place, but at least go to Tulane. So I applied to Tulane, got in phenomenal school, but you know, I just a pen, just like, grabbed my imagination and, and, you know, I wanted to go, go there. So
1: I ended up doing that. And then what about too, cause you said, you know, that growing up on the Island is just beautiful and uh, you know, new Orleans has its, has a real beauty to it. I've always found, I don't know that you can say that about Pennsylvania as much. So was that kind of, I mean, look, I, I love Pennsylvania, but was that a big change for you too, to spend winters at Penn?
0: It it was very um, hard from that perspective, you know, growing up on a tropical island, you have no idea how to dress for the winter. You know, you either, I remember borrowing like just these awful clothes from relatives and friends, like these huge bulky sweaters and like, I didn't have the right boots. And you don't realize that you don't bundle up and then you go into this hot classroom, right. (laughs) And I'm just sweating. So the idea of layering was just no clue right? Yeah. The idea of proper boots that aren't going to get, you know, we I lived on the opposite side of the engineering school. So trudging through 20 minutes to get to an 8am, you know, engineering class was not very smart. And we didn't have a lot of money. So I could not go out and just buy a new wardrobe, yeah. right? I had to yeah. make do. I mean, I'm making it sound like we were, we weren't poor, but we didn't have, you know, the means to just, you know, I had to make do with what I had, right? Yeah. And so um, that was, that was a big shock, right? But But, you know, I also knew it wasn't You're not going to, as an undergrad, it's not like you're going to be out in the town every night. So I wasn't so much looking at Philadelphia as, oh, this is a place to go or New Orleans, I'll go there and party. It's like, what it's about the school, right? Frankly, because you're going to spend all your waking and sleeping hours there pretty much. So it wasn't so much about that. I I think it's a little bit different in grad school, you know, when you you realize you might have a little bit more time or I don't know, you're just thinking a little more broadly. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, so that was kind of a no brainer for me to to go to Penn.
1: But that sounds, I mean, I think that a lot of kids actually do think about how, what school they're going to, you know, how much they're going to party at school, et cetera. <laughs> what, what city is it close to? But you, that's sort of telling me that you were pretty focused on the education. from the. I get-go.
0: was, I mean, come on, I'm out there playing with iguanas and, you know, snorkeling. And, <laughs> just, I mean, I had a lot of friends. I was involved in a lot of social things, but. I was just, I still am just such a geek at heart. Like I was so excited about the classes and about the research. I mean, it was miserable. It was hard. Yeah. I didn't have the high school training that a lot of my counterparts had. I really, really struggled. I did fine, but it was a, you know, I didn't have AP courses. I didn't have anything, you know, so I had a lot of catching up to do. Um. So it was hard. I mean, I will not lie to you. It was, it was, you know, I loved it, but at the same time, it was really, really hard, um, but, but, I, but I think the love outweighed <laughs> the, the difficulties.
1: Yeah. So I, I'm making some assumptions here, but it sounds like, okay, you're leaving the beautiful tropical island and coming to Pennsylvania. Um, you're not quite prepared for the climate change, and also you realize that there are probably people there who were better prepared by their high school than you might have been. So yeah. is this all kind of a culture shock? Did you have that feeling where you're like, do I really belong here? Is this place yeah. for me, that that sort of thing? You did.
0: Yeah, I did. And also the other thing that was a big culture shock was um, kind of the whole fraternity and sorority culture. That's just, not, yeah. it's never been me. I mean, I like to party as, you know, with the rest of them, you know, I'd go to some of these parties, but it's just not my thing. I was incredibly fortunate to be put in a dorm called Van Pelt College House. I think the name has changed several times now that was filled with people just like me. It was the geeks, the engineers, the foreign exchange students, the artists. And we did coffee houses, you know, talent shows every quarter. We we went and watched, I don't know how many, you know, Star Trek TNG the year it came out. I was in college and we were watching it in my friend Tim's room and we were watching Princess Bride on Laserdisc, right? This oh, yeah. is what we would oh, yeah. do on the weekends, right? Yeah. We'd sit and we'd talk a science and sci-fi We'd play guitar, I sang in bands, um, and we talked sci-fi all day long. Went to sci-fi conventions, went to, you know, Society for Creative Anachronism, and those were my peeps. So I, fortunately, I had those people, I had my the people I did research with, I had my engineering classmates, some of whom I'm still dear friends with, Yeah, you know, um, so that, you know, so I, it, it, like with any college, you find your peeps and exactly, you, you make right. a home. Right. So for me, um, Penn was just amazing that way. Right. I had my, my dorm and, and everything else. Huh. Okay.
1: So then you come
0: back from France
1: for MIT. Yeah,
0: that's and- right. So I got into MIT. I got into um, some, I was very fortunate. Right. I got accepted into some phenomenal chemical engineering graduate programs, uh, Wisconsin, Minnesota, MIT, um, and a couple others. And, um, I visited, I'd love to tell the story. I I came back in February when I was in France to do the final visits to decide. And I show up to, um, it's February. So I show up to Minnesota and the snow's up to here, right? And I'm going through the tunnels. I'm going, wow, phenomenal program, but I I don't know how I do this, right? (laughs) And then I go to Wisconsin and the snow's down to here.
1: Yeah.
0: And then I go to Boston and it's one of the crazy Boston weather days that it's 60 degrees and sunny. In February, everybody's partying, everybody's out of the the chemi grad students take me out partying and say, you got to come here. It's a great place, whatever. And I mean, I'm kidding aside, I did not make it on the base decision on the basis of that, but it was just kind of funny that I showed up for the visits and I was like, okay, I'm coming to MIT. Well, plus I still had that connection from the program I had done all those years before. That
1: was still kind of number one in your heart then, MIT maybe.
0: Absolutely. Oh, always. And, and that was, you know, as great as Penn was, MIT just, I, I, I just loved every minute of it there. Jewelry isn't a gift you give just once. It's a way to remind your loved one of a beautiful moment every time they see it. Blue Nile can help you find the gift that says how you feel and says it beautifully with expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price.
1: Did you get this, did you pick up the entrepreneurial vibe at MIT? I mean, I've met so many people in this industry who have come through MIT one way or another, as far as entrepreneurs go, um, and I just think it breeds them.
0: Oh, absolutely. I mean, I I was incredibly fortunate at MIT to be co-advised by um, some amazing folks in the industry and also to see, so my main advisor at MIT and Kemi uh, was Greg Stephanopoulos. Yeah. He was brilliant. Uh, in metabolic engineering, which was what my PhD thesis was on. But I was also co-advised by Tony Sinski, who is entrepreneurial in his own right. And I also, um, one of my dear housemates, um, Mark Prowsnitz, who's now a professor at Georgia Tech, his advisor was Langer. So I was seeing all this innovation going on um, and, and just being blown away by these companies being created. Also, my PhD work generated some technology. We eventually didn't get the patents granted, but it had to do with overproduction of various amino acids and lysine producing organisms and we licensed it to Archer Daniels Midland so I got on, I got into the and I you know got royalties for a few years for that technology you know not a lot, but enough to buy a nice bottle of wine or something. but the point is I had you know I, I could see the connection between coming up with new discoveries and actually potentially having a commercial application. So I got introduced to that uh, through my work there um, and uh, yeah, absolutely love the idea and and was really, you know, still fascinated by the whole concept of being able to engineer microorganisms or engineer cells to make whatever you can think of, you know, take yep. inputs and outputs and then it all has to fit in a certain economic equation to make sense. but. Um, just, I was hooked, right? I was like, this is this is phenomenal, right? So it wasn't so much the um, biotech healthcare applications that I started with. It was really the industrial biotech applications. And I know Tony started, you know, he had yeah. metabolics. And I know you talked to Tillman earlier about metabolics and all that. So I saw I was there when yeah. that was forming. Um, and uh, yeah, so bottom line, yes, absolutely. The entrepreneurial uh, so you- fire.
1: Yeah, you went in thinking, "I love research, I love being in the lab," and came out understanding that those things had ties to industry. If you wanted them, they were there. You could take that work, and it could go out and be something.
0: That's right. That's right. And I saw it all the time. Right? They were always starting companies. I mean, it was interesting because I was never really interested in the business side. You know, even when I was at Penn, um, you know, some of my best friends were Whartonites, right? And so they were doing the whole business thing, and I was like, "Ah, money. That's so yeah. boring. Who cares yeah. about finance, accounting? That's that's." I never want to do business. Like that was my general simplistic view. And likewise at MIT, I was like, it was just all about the science. But, um, but the problem is, you know, I, I finished uh, my PhD and then did a postdoc for a year just because I was still deciding what I wanted to do. And I had, I woke up in horror one day when I realized, why did I do my PhD? What am I going to do with it? I mean, I don't want to be in the lab forever. I do love the lab. But I I wanted to be out there, whatever oh. out there meant. And then I realized, okay, the kind of off I got a couple offers to do lab work and kind of industrial postdocs, if you will, and in some of the local pharma companies at the time. There weren't that many there at the time. And I said, Oh, my God, no, I don't want to do that. And my professors were telling me, you know, you'd be make a great professor, your research did well, you know, we can connect you, there's positions at all these other places, we can put in a good word. I'm like, I saw what you went through with grants and politics and trying to, you know, I don't want to do that either. And I went, Oh, what am I going to do with my life? And then, um, you know, so it was a real wake up moment. <laughs> I realized I had no plan. I just yeah. did it for the love of it throughout. Um, and it wasn't until uh some of my friends were interviewing at McKinsey that I discovered there was this whole other option that I hadn't even considered. And that's how huh. I ended up down that path.
1: Okay. So tell me about that. So this I think um I mean I've heard that McKinsey, you know, they they so you didn't have any business background, right? And they're None. consultancy, really. But they they had begun None. to hire people who were intelligent in other ways than maybe they could make up. You don't see what I'm saying? Like you knew lots of things about, about research and maybe even how that's tied to industry and you could pick up the business like that. That's
0: exactly right. And so I think what happened, if you think about this was in 1996 when I finished my postdoc and they were, they were going to Harvard and MIT and Stanford and, you know, you know, uh, Northwestern and all, all the top schools because they realized, you know, they were hiring, The top couple percent of MBAs from the top schools and they were growing so fast. There's only so many of those people to go around and they're competing with them for investment banking and all these other things. And they said, where else can we find smart people? And at the same time, I think they realized that smart could mean different things, like exactly like you said. It didn't have to mean an MBA degree and all this other stuff. It could be um, complementary to that. You could Hmm. take JDs, you know, sharp legal minds that could add to the team, PhDs, not just in science and engineering, but also, you know, I worked with PhDs in linguistics and English at McKinsey. And then of course, MDs, right? So we, we call them APDs, you know, advanced professional degrees. And of course it's, you have to do with a TLA, a three-letter acronym, because everything at McKinsey was TLA. (laughs) So the TLA for this was APD. So they were hiring APDs and they were hiring like crazy. And so they'd come up and, you know, here you are, a starving grad student, used to whatever, And they wine and dine you these incredible seminars that they would hear. And they had all this wine and a big spread. And they had these glamorous people coming up and saying, oh, and I was in Sweden last week and I traveled to Thailand. I did this project and that project. And I met, you know, first name basis with CEOs of, you know, Fortune 50 companies. And you're going, wow, that's so glamorous and exciting. yeah." And uh, you can learn all this stuff and they pay you a lot of money and they do all that. You know, but all kidding aside, aside from the superficial aspects of it, I actually something sparked, you know, and talking to some of them, I was like, wow, this is really interesting. You learn how, you know, I had been to the campus at Archer Daniels Midland and saw the impact of all, how the technology came together and made products. And, you know, little something clicked and said, OK, maybe this business thing, as I call it, isn't so bad. You know, I really need to learn that and grow so um, so I went through the interview process and, you know, made it through. It was incredibly rigorous. Um, and I was fortunate enough to be chosen. And I started in the Stanford, Connecticut office. And so I, was, I ended up being there for four years at, at different offices because we moved around a few times. You know, I was married another guy from MIT and we ended up moving. So I was a one uh, year in the Connecticut office, two years in the Pittsburgh office, and then one year in the San Francisco office. And I did not just biotech work, but high tech work. Um, you know, with major uh, tech technical companies, uh, pulp and paper, um, hospital consolidation, you know, all kinds of uh, interesting projects. You know, I did a, a project you know, in Sweden for the medical device company. Um, it was an amazing experience.
1: What were you doing? Were you you're writing you're writing up like white papers on these companies? You're, yeah. So the way
0: yeah the way it works is so there's kind of three big buckets right operations organization and strategy and almost anything can fit into one of those buckets right and and now of course there's more ways to look at things but. Um, you know, so it might be a company that needs to do a massive, um, you know, cost restructuring those are, those were kind of the ones we didn't like to do because they're not always pleasant, but they're important. Yeah. And you can bring best yeah. practices and principles for whether it's purchasing or, you know, headcount, better utilization, better organizational structure. I viewed it as a training, right. Yeah. As an, as to be able to go in, get this training and get propelled into a whole new set of opportunities, which is what happened. I got hired by a client. By was one it one of my last projects? Was it affy AffiMetrics? Yes. Yeah. Sue Siegel. Oh yeah, still yeah, a yeah. Phenomenal, amazing person, leader in the industry. Is very fortunate to work with her, and um, yeah, she offered me a job after I did a couple of projects for the team, working with a, a you know some great partners and associates, and uh, it was at a very exciting time. You know, it was 2000. Uh, human genome had been sequenced. Yep. AffiMetrics was really they're everywhere. Yeah. 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 Everywhere. And especially in oncology, you know, expression for oncology. So it was a great time to join, really phenomenal team. I'm still good friends with many, many of my Affymetrix colleagues. And but, but you yeah. went, in, so you went in as a business position though. I so went in as a business was... position. Yeah. I was very yeah. fortunate. I was able to go in as, as the title was VP of corporate planning.
1: And so you, from there, I, th- I think you went to Gilead.
0: Yes. Yes. I went yeah. to Gilead at a really exciting time. Yeah. Yeah.
1: T- tell me about that.
0: So they were building um, a, a commercial strategy group headed by Howie R- Rosen, who's who's still a friend. He's wonderful. And he had been at Alza and a number of places. And um, he was building a group uh, under Kevin Young uh, that was really focused on, you know, the company was really um, at an inflection point, right? Trying to expand from beyond virology, beyond HIV and HBV. To begin to look at new indications and also how do you, you know, when you own most of a market, how do you, you know, how do you continue to drive growth there? And so they were building a team to really um, formalize these processes, right? Looking at, you know, five and 10 year commercial strategic plans for The existing franchises and also expanding into others. And so I I was hired to head the group under him that was responsible for the strategic planning aspect of it. Right. So he had franchise leaders. And then in my group, I built market research, competitive intelligence, modeling and forecasting And, you know, working closely with the corporate development group, which was quite small, consider an amazing group of talented people who've gone off to do amazing things, but it was a small group, right? They needed more resources. So we collaborated with them on a lot of the the support for the corporate development assessments, but we also worked internally with the R&D group to um, look at new franchise areas, look at new growth areas for the existing ones. Um, so I did that. And then when I did, um, when we integrated all these new companies, you know, I was working directly for John Milligan for a bit. And I went to him, I said, John, we have all these alliances, you know, I, I noticed R&D has some alliances, commercial, uh, there's some research ones and development ones. And, um, I'm getting tight, pulled into them because I'm helping you with these, uh, these new companies. And they said, we don't have an alliance management group you know, we, it's kind of, everybody doesn't know where to go. What do you finance legal and how do you deal with this milestone and that information? And how do you make decisions with the partner? He says, well, go figure it out. <laughs> so I put on my McKinsey hat and I picked up the phone and I started calling Alliance management groups all over pharma. Cause it's not competitive to just ask them, how do you guys do it? Yeah. Like h- how big is your group? Do you report yeah. into corporate? Do you report into R and D? Who do you report to? How, what kind of people do you hire? What is the role of the alliance manager? So I put together, and then I went internally to all the functions at Gilead, and I talked to the head of manufacturing, the head of IR, everybody. Um, and I said, what are your concerns? What do you know about these alliances? I put together a um, kind of a, a list of the 50 or however many alliances we had. Who, who knew what about them? What were the obligations? Um, what was going on? And I said, I think you need four people of these backgrounds, you can give the commercial ones to this person, whatever. And I, I mapped it out. I give him this McKinsey-like deck and he looks at it and he goes, great, go build the group. <laughs> so I went and I built the group. So,
1: you know, I, I like that. Um, you know, you hear this all the time about CEOs, uh, you can't do everything. And when you come across somebody who, uh, can do the job to just delegate and let them do it. And he'd found that in you. It's just like, you do it. I don't need to think about that. You can do this and go do it, right? I mean, that's that's a relief for the CEO to just go, that's, Grace has this taken care of.
0: Yeah, yeah. I mean, and it was really fun. It was a fun project because I think um, it was nice that uh, the various functional leaders felt heard. And they said, oh, great, this will solve my problem. Because, like, I'm in legal and I get these documents requesting, you know, to sign this Paperwork, or this deal, or this milestone, I have to approve, and I wasn't quite sure who to go to. So you're making my job easier. So it was, it was kind of, it was nice to be able to address, you know, issues that everybody was having.
1: What do you think about? Because I've been thinking about Gilead a lot lately. When you sit and think about what they've done, as far as their their tackling of HIV, and then Savaldi, perhaps see. I mean, those those are you can die with that legacy and be happy. And sometimes I feel like the general public doesn't really know what that company has done. I mean, I understand that they license in some of those things and then develop them themselves, but what, what did you make of the culture while you were there? Well,
0: it was interesting. You know, When I was there, um, we didn't have any commercialized products that we were commercializing that we had invented at that point. If you think about it, the one yeah, invention tri- they at they that in point triangle. that was commercial. Exactly. So the yeah. one product that they had commercialized that is, that was commercial they didn't market that was Tamiflu right yep. and so it was interesting so it was a culture that was really they had a great R&D group great research group but um you know a lot of the commercialized pieces were you know in licensing so that, so that's a capability in and of itself is identifying these potential winners and then developing them this is a clinical development machine at Gilead you know under yeah. Norbert who um, yeah. was fortunate to work with and and in, of course you might argue virology it's a little bit different than other you know than oncology and other areas in terms yeah. of a little bit i don't want to downplay it but you know endpoints are clear you kind of know what you're looking for you replicate that and do that very very well when you start looking at new therapeutic areas it's different endpoints different challenges Hard. a lot of learnings across the value chain right so they were really good at that, but then they started, then they had um, you know, innovations that they did bring into play that they mixed into some of the combos and then they had th- other things that they built on and brought forth. Um, so yeah, back to the legacy thing. I mean, I think the, the challenge is when you're a public company there's certain growth expectations. And I remember modeling when we were in this strategic planning group, we would model kind of here's the analyst expectations of the growth of the various revenue streams and then the gap was getting bigger and bigger. So in other words, if you projected the revenues from all the known programs, and then you looked at sort of what the analysts were expecting implicitly in the stock price, there's a huge gap that got bigger. So that's the gap we were trying to fill, yeah. either with additional products through the existing franchises or through you know acquisitions. And I remember looking at you know HCV early on. We modeled that out. We said, this is what's going to happen to the HCV market. And, but it's going to add all this value, but it's going to be a challenge. And we were modeling that many, many years before we finally made the acquisition. We did look at that early on. It's funny. So, I don't think I,
1: yeah. I don't think I knew or thought about that. Um, when you're thinking about the growth of the company, you actually are sort of played up against what the analysts have said.
0: Yeah. And so you really need yeah, to find that growth. And that, that is a challenge. It's almost like a, it, it is pretty thankless, unfortunately, with these companies. You do all these amazing things and the markets have short-term memory. It's like, great, you did that. Now what else are you going to do for me?
1: Uh, the, I want to ask about this too, because it seems like another area where you just went in and added something to your own arsenal, right? Uh, new Science Ventures.
0: yes. Yes. How
1: did you How did you get involved in that?
0: So it's a, bit, a little convoluted. So um, when I left Gilead, I ended up going to um, Intrexon for a couple of years, and then I left there. And, I, and at that point, I had sort of, I, re- I knew I really wanted to do a startup, and I really wanted to either start something myself or get involved with startups because the Intrexon experience, I, I built a division from scratch. It was kind of like a startup, and really loved it. And so I co-founded a company um, that ended up. Not really, unfortunately, being successful, but it was a great experience. It was a glycosylation early stage company looking P- at uh, post every, uh, yes, exactly. Yeah. And I was looking to I co-founded it with a with a colleague of mine from Intrexon, and I, I sort of taught myself how to start a company. Around the same time, I was doing that. One of the people involved in that was a, a, a mutual friend, you know, John Patton. So uh, originally from from Inhale, then Nectar Therapeutics. And he was chair of Encarta at that time. And they were looking for a CEO because they had this fantastic idea and early work that they had done. And, you know, fast forward, that's the company (laughs) I've grown today. But at the time, I was looking for funding for both of those companies. And so I was learning how to fundraise. I was tapping, you know, knocking on every door. And I went to a former classmate of mine, Vivek Mohindra, who was in my class at MIT, one of my favorite classmates. He was approached by a former mutual colleague of ours from McKinsey, Somosu Ramanian, who had co-founded New Science Ventures. And he was an operating, he was a partner, sorry, he was a partner at NSV. And I called him up to say, to see if NSV might be interested in investing. Um, so in our conversation, um, they ended up not investing, but they said, hey, we've been looking for a biotech partner. We have but back on the tech side, we need a biotech partner and you have everything we're looking for. You've been in practically every corner of biotech. You've MIT McKinsey, you know, this is perfect. I said, great, but can I still do these projects on the side? Are you okay with that? And they said, yes. So I joined as a partner and helped, um, co-lead a number of investments, but also, um, help some of the existing companies, you know, went on the boards of them or took interim CEO roles to, um, try, you know, pivot them or help them. I learned what investors are looking for. So that was very helpful with my own right. fundraising. Right. Um, and, uh, but then, then things started taking off with Encarta and um, one of their investors actually ended up, or their, one of the groups that they invested with a lot ended up leading our series A that was Morningside. We'll always be very grateful about that. And then started getting busier and busier. And, you know, I had to have a conversation saying, well, you know, does it make sense on both sides to I can't really be a partner in the next fund because, you know, I got this going on. So I stayed as an advisor for a couple of years and continued to help with the companies. But then Encarta kept on progressing. So I had to then say, I, I, you know, I got to roll off these boards. I need to dedicate pretty much full time to Encarta.
1: Yeah, that's when, you know, when I look at your career, that's one of the things that I noted, too, is that you, you are, at this point, really well rounded, you you know, you, you started with the science, then you started getting into consultancy. And mm-hmm. then you're in big companies, you're looking at clinical programs, uh, industrial biotech. And what you didn't really have really was the the venture side. And of course, then you went and got that. So now do you feel like you are completely prepared for whatever this industry has to offer? I mean, you could run small companies, you could go back to a large company, if you wanted to do more VC, you could.
0: Yeah. I mean, I feel really fortunate, right? I've had, and I often, people often ask me about my career, like what was my big plan? And you probably hear this all the time. There's no plan. You know, you you set a direction, you follow yeah. your passion and you do that. So in terms of being prepared, um, yeah, I feel like I do have a really well-rounded background. And I, 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 the other thing is I, I, I have so many interests that I, I do feel that, you know, my, my ideal career kind of, you know, I, I'm Absolutely passionate about Encarta, and we could talk a little bit more about that in a minute, but I feel that a, a next stage in a career would be how can I get involved with with multiple companies that are in different aspects of you know exciting technology, you know microbiome, cell therapy you know
1: yeah, I think I think that's sort of my question There are people who when they start their career, they think I'm going to work in gene therapy
0: mm-hmm. and then
1: they do that for fifty years, right yeah, and th- I think that's great. but there are also people who want to do different things all the time. And you seem like you're in that second bucket.
0: Yeah, I, I think so. I mean, on the one hand, I'm, you know, I, I get dedicated and, you know, passionate about something, you know, I've been within Carta for the last seven years, and I'm not going anywhere anytime soon. Uh, but I've done a lot on the side, right. And I've been able to to do that, right, especially in the earlier days, when, um, you know, there was still some capacity to do that. And frankly, some need, because in the early days, when you have no money, <laughs> <laughs> you know, you, you you can dedicate time to it, but still spend a little time on on some other things because a lot of times it's synergistic, right? If you're doing some other things, sometimes that brought me investor relationships that I could then use for my company. So there's some synergies in being in an ecosystem where you're having lots of conversations with investors, for example, or with pharma.
1: So I, I want to ask this too because uh, I saw that you're an advisor for the Miller Center for Entrepreneur for Social Entrepreneurship at, right. at Santa Clara how did mm-hmm. you get involved in that and then just tell me sort of what that means
0: oh absolutely what social
1: entrepreneurship is yeah
0: absolutely so that um so it used to be called the center for science and technology it's been around for 20 years it, it's really a phenomenal um center that is dedicated you know has has a a broad mission of of improving the planet through social entrepreneurship and you know, a lot of organizations are, are doing that and, and doing, you know, exciting things around that. But what was unique about the Miller Center is they're really focused on enabling social entrepreneurs for the long term by providing tools and support and mentors. They have over a hundred Silicon Valley experienced executives who are mentoring these companies from all over the world and very focused on business models and profitability. Because what you really would like to do to help developing countries is really empower the citizens and empower local entrepreneurs so that they can build sustainable businesses. It's not about charity. It's not about, I'll give you a grant. It's how do I enable you to take a local need in your market, bring technology, bring solutions, bring, you know, existing things that could be replicated from elsewhere, you know, water franchising model that can happen in any country. So that's one aspect of it. The other aspect is, you know, connecting them to capital right? Mm Because there's a lot of social capital right now. Um, And then part of that is the intellectual rigor of coming up with return models for that capital. And then the other aspect of it is, of course, students. So they have an honors program for seniors at Santa Clara to um, spend, you know, really uh, get connected to social entrepreneurship. And they spend a summer before their senior year uh, working, basically interning with different social entrepreneur um, enterprises all over the world and so we as advisory board members work with um you know the center and help them think about strategy and and come up with things like one of the things i was very big on early on was this whole replication how do you replicate all the wonderful findings from a company that has had a successful business model whether it's solar ovens whether it's apps for farmers that they can download for weather or fair pricing or whatever there's million types of things
1: I mean, the thing that has set the U.S. biotech industry apart, by the way, is its access to capital for years and years. Mm-hmm. I mean, we know that. So it's mm-hmm. that that sort of idea like, okay – if you have someone who's willing to invest in you, how do you handle that money? How do you find a way to return it to the LPs? How does this whole thing work? It's like that.
0: That's right. Well, it's that, but it's also access to resources, to business models, to... Mentors, um, as you
1: said, yeah. And,
0: and and it might not even be, it doesn't have to be high tech. It can be low tech, but it's, it's you know, there's very bright people who might not have access to education and capital, and right. or, or they do have access to education. They don't have the capital... And they don't have uh, mentors or experience to know how to do stuff. but the fire in the belly is there, and that's that's common to an entrepreneur no matter where you are exactly. whether right. it's Guatemala, Namibia, the u s, you know it's it just it, and there's that connection, right that that sense of recognition when you meet fellow entrepreneurs, you share that passion.
1: Um, I want to ask you this. I don't know if you have an opinion on it, but uh, so when this when the pandemic first started happening and everything was shut down, you know, my first thought was, okay, the markets are going to close and that's going to then dry up VC spending for for biotechs and we're going to sort of go into a, a biotech recession. That has not been the case mm-hmm. at all. And I'm wondering what you think about the health of this industry.
0: That's a really interesting question. I mean, I think one of the, as we all know, one of the reasons so much capital has been driven into biotech is people are afraid to put capital in other sites. So, I mean, it's like with anything happens, right? You have macro trends, And all of a sudden the capital flows to whatever they feel they can benefit. And it's interesting because it's, it's very short-term thinking. I mean, I mean, I'm glad the money's flowing to biotech right now, but that same short-term thinking might make it, you know, slow down once biotech's no longer, you know, the the viewed as the top and only option, right. Except for some exceptions and notable exceptions in tech. Um, So I think that, um, the health of the industry, a lot is going to depend on, you know, we, we already knew, for example, the patent cliff and, you know, how can the industry transform itself? I, I think one of the things that I've seen being in the segments of biotech that I've been across and in healthcare is that there is a, not enough of a connection of the, on the total cost of care. This is why in the last few years I've developed a real passion for chronic care management, whether it's cardiology or respiratory or diabetes. I think that a lot of what the industry was doing before was let's develop these innovative, expensive drugs, and you know we'll, we'll you know there'll be a, a certain um, attrition rate, and then we'll you know have the price, and that'll fund the R and D dollars. Yeah. Um, that is not sustainable necessarily in its current form in the long term because we've seen that the cost of healthcare well, for one the cost of healthcare is so much more than just the drugs right yeah absolutely and there's a lot of innovation to be untapped that doesn't have to be the sexiest latest innovation you know that will that's the only solution to the problem right there are things that we have today whether it's generic drugs whether it's innovative ways of delivering those drugs whether it's patient management and integration with patient activities and data that can help you drive decision-making and care decisions. You know, I'll give you an example. So COPD, you know, I don't know, $50 billion cost to the industry, uh, healthcare industry or more. And a lot of the cost is exacerbations, right? That's a big driver of cost in later stage COPD. But what if you could you know, slow the progression of the disease, not necessarily for an through an individual, um, you know, an individual uh, new drug, but by uh, decreasing the chances that you will exacerbate, because that drives the progression as well. So, if you could do that by a combination of apps and wearables and patient symptomatology, so that as soon as you start getting a disease activity that's going up. You can do an intervention, that intervention might be come in, we're going to give you steroids for a few days, or we're going to give you some respiratory therapy, or we're going to, oh, you know, it's now, uh, you know, winter, so you're likely getting infection, let's keep an eye on that. There's a lot you can do that could hopefully decrease the progression and decrease, you know, exacerbations. You know, that's what one of my companies is focused on, by, by coming up with a better measurement of disease activity that is integrated with, other, you know, a set of biomarkers and algorithms that can be integrated with wearables and other tools and patient apps. So there's a lot of innovation. What I would say is big eye that looks at the totality of the problem. And then, then how do you pay for it? So you go to a value-based healthcare system and you say, if you know, I'll help you manage your risky population by helping you focus resources on those at the highest risk. That's a hard problem to solve, and it's easier yeah. to just say, "I'm just going to go invest in a fancy drug." Nothing wrong with fancy drugs. I love biotech. I'm in biotech. Right. My point is that shouldn't be the only solution.
1: I just so I, I just had knee surgery, right? A really minor knee surgery, a tiny meniscus tear. You know, you walk in, you walk out. But, and I have insurance. But. What they wanted, what the hospital wanted to bill for that surgery was like $30,000. And if you don't have insurance, you're shit out of luck with that. Yeah. And I mean, I couldn't, I mean, I was looking at those bills coming in and yes, my insurance had covered and knocked down the price and blah, blah, blah. But I'm like, this is so out of whack. If you did not have insurance and you were a person and you're with a family, you wouldn't go have knee surgery because you're not going to spend $30,000 on it.
0: And I look at that and
1: I'm like, it's so broken. I don't know how we fix that thing.
0: It is absolutely broken, whether it's pricing transparency, whether, you know, it's, it, and it's so, um, it's so ad hoc. it's just so crazy. It's like, you know, each, each place does it differently. I mean, there's no transparency, yeah. there's no real accountability, there's no follow through, there's no connection to outcomes and quality. I mean, there's so many things that are broken. And so um, not to get into politics, but on the one hand, you know, people have a knee jerk reaction when you start talking about things that reek of you know, single payer or reek of, you know, government healthcare, I don't think it has to be all the way one or the other. I think there are elements that have been implemented in other countries and other systems that help with some of the craziness, right? There's some basic common sense things we could be doing that won't destroy, you know, innovation that won't destroy businesses, but at the same time can make things better. But you have to fix it all kind of at once and that's not going to happen, so, I'm hoping that one way we can address it is through innovation that integrates these things and then makes it a no brainer. Sounds yeah, very it's, idealistic, but I'm going uh, to, that's my story and I'm sticking to it.
1: Yeah, there's, there's nothing wrong with being idealistic. I mean, that's, we should be that way. But so the things you're talking about are like, okay, if we get into this uh, chronic illness earlier and then they don't exacerbate, then they don't go to the hospital, which keeps that amount of money out of the healthcare system, right?
0: And it's better for the patient because if you're the delaying progression, I mean, so a perfect example is, is what we're doing at Encarta, right? So right now there is no way to treat, if I have an episode of AFib, so AFib is a progressive disease, right? Yeah. And it's, um, there are several stages. It's defined in three, but the first stage is paroxysmal where all of a sudden you, oh, wow, my heart feels funny. You, you feel skip beats. So in many cases, your heart rate's very high. You're dizzy, feel very anxious. Um, And then in that early stage, those episodes can go away in seconds, minutes, days, you know, up to seven days. That's the definition. But they always self-resolve eventually uh, under seven days. But you might have it for three days, right? And that's too Mm -hmm. long. Even a few hours is too long in terms of how you feel. But in the meantime, every time you're having an episode, you're adding slightly to the electrophysiological remodeling of the heart, and that's permanent. And so every minute you're in AF, every minute of AF burden you're, you're slightly progressing to the tune of eight to 10% of people a year in that first bucket progress to the next one, which is persistent, where it doesn't self-resolve. And you have to go in and get electrical cardioversion because the pharmacological options of conversion aren't there. And then eventually it goes to permanent where nothing works. So what if every time you had a PAF episode, you could stop it within a few minutes so that the additive effect of all those minutes, hours, days of AF would be dramatically different. Guess what? There's nothing that can do that today. Believe it or not, all the innovation in the world in cardiology and the antiarrhythmic drugs that exist in the US have only been approved for chronic prevention and they don't work mm-hmm. very well. They're not tolerated. If you're having three to five episodes a year, why would you take a pill 365 days a year that doesn't make yep. you feel great? Now, if you had something that could stop it in minutes, if even when you went to the ER, never mind at home, yep. if they could give you something that you knew every time would have a high likelihood of returning you back to normal so you can go on with your day and reduce progression. That would dramatically change, right? That's what we're working on. We're working on an inhaled version of an antiarrhythmic. You can get it in at a lower dose through inhalation in a few minutes. We show we stop the episode in three minutes after you take the drug. So that would dramatically change the the course of the disease and cost to the healthcare system.
1: Yep. Uh, one more thing I want to ask you, and then I'm going to let you go. But Uh, You mentioned earlier that um, sometimes you still sing musical theater. Yeah. So how did, how did that start? And like, this to me also just is another example of kind of your well-rounded interests.
0: Yeah. Well, you know um, Puerto Rico growing up in Puerto Rico is a very musical place. So um, like a lot of Latino cultures, um, everybody's singing all the time. Right. And uh, my, my grandfather um, the one I never met, was a huge lover of opera. So all of his kids, huh. most of his kids have operatic names. Atos, Brunilda, Fedora, my father's name oh, was really? Hector. Yes, and the youngest of those eight was an opera singer, Evangelina Colon, my my sweet aunt. Her daughter, Ana Maria Martinez, is a, a very well-known opera singer. She went to Juilliard, undergrad, and Masters. She sings all over the world with Placido. She's, you know, she's, she's debuted at the Met and everything. So wow. and my dad used to sing, he used to serenade my mom in her dorm in Lafayette with his oh guitar and all the ladies would swoon at this handsome young Latino, you know, singing with his Ricky Ricardo accent, <laughs> um, and which he had, I never realized he had until someone, you know, they both passed away many years ago, but people would say, your dad has such a cute accent. I'm like, what, what accent? Oh, I don't hear yeah. it, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Um, but anyway, um so, so I grew up, you know, we'd have family parties, all generations mixing, everybody's playing guitar, piano. And so I grew up singing, did a lot of musicals in high school, and then um do, did musicals at Pan at MIT. They're, they're you did. fabulous. Yes. Oh, yes. I did um about 15 shows when I was at MIT. How and did several, you have time for that? You just, you know, no sleep, right? So you set, you set up a set up a microbial culture, go off to rehearsal, come back, spin it down, do whatever, go off, talk oh to my aerobics class that I taught, came back and, you know, went across the river, come take fermentation samples, run them through the HBLC, have a few hours, go to rehearsal. So, you know, you just, you know, you do it all on the campus and um, it was so much fun. And so I, I love singing. I haven't done theater in a long time, but just recently I realized I can't, I still miss it a lot. So I've been doing a few little things here and there. and going to try to take it out. The hard part is, You know, in in your career it's hard to make time for a show because you have rehearsals and you have if you're traveling, it's really hard. Yeah. But I'm trying to come up with ways that when the pandemic is over, you know, it could be a cabaret night or it could be, you know, small performance type things. Right now I'm doing stuff online, but I'm not gonna give you the links to those. (laughs) (laughs) But the the 15 that you did at MIT.
1: I mean, what 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 were some of the names? Am I going to so know? So
0: I was um, Anita in West Side Story, of yeah, course. Okay. I was the uh, Bloody Mary in uh, South Pacific. I was, uh, you know, I, I did Sondheim. I did a lot of Gilbert and Sullivan. So that was- I don't know that. Those were all my peeps. So the Mikado, Pirates of Penzance, you know, oh, okay. all of those yeah, types yeah. of things, right? Um, and uh, yeah, so some modern, some more classic, right? So Pippin and A Little Night Music and, you know, all all of those. So I, yeah, I have a whole list. So Um, just before
1: the pandemic hit then, what was your, what was your current, I'm sure you keep up on musical theater then. What was your current number one that was still showing like on Broadway?
0: That current number one that I like or that? I Yeah.
1: Yeah. Yeah. That you liked.
0: Oh my gosh. So many of them. Oh my God. Kinky boots and waitress. And I mean, just, you know, there's been so many amazing shows, fun home and Evan Hansen and Hamilton. And I mean, there's, there's just a lot of great, I mean, I love Lin-Manuel obviously as a yeah, yeah, fellow yeah. Puerto Rican. Yeah. I would love to be in, in the Heights. I could play Abuela or the Puerto Rican mom. Um, but I, you know, there's just so much, so much great stuff going on on Broadway. I, it, it, it just breaks my heart. What's going on right now, obviously. For, yeah. I mean, a lot of people have it really bad, right? But when we talk about Broadway, I just I think of them, and I, I it just breaks my heart.
1: Uh, I have, and then I am going to let you go. I have to say that um, when Hamilton was at its its heights, I couldn't get a ticket. No one could, and I put in for the lottery for me and my wife. And my third attempt, we won it, and uh, we we were in the front row, middle, front oh, row. I'm so I jealous. Believe I couldn't believe I'm it. I'm
0: so jealous. That is I've never funny. won I never in my life saw it on the original run. I never. Yeah, it was but, incredible. Oh yeah, That must have been amazing.
1: Listen, thank you for doing this. I'm, um, sure. I'm going to let you go. Uh, I appreciate the time, and I'll let you know when it's out.
0: Yeah, thank you. Thank you so much for having me. This was a blast.
1: Okay, there it is, your First Rounders podcast with Grace Cologne. It's fun, right? So much fun. It's just. It's also a reminder. I live in New York City, and I never go to the theater. Well, not never. I rarely go to the theater. Even before the pandemic, I rarely went to the theater, and that's a reminder that I should go more often. So, thank you, Grace, for um, for making me. I, I didn't. I haven't seen Kinky Boots. I should go see Kinky Boots. Okay. If you have comments about this show, our journal, Nature Biotechnology, or anything that we do, you can find us on Twitter. Our handle is at Nature Biotech. Thank you to the Midwest Quiet for use of your music in this podcast. By the time you're listening to this, it'll be January 2021. Uh, you know, there's a lot of talk this year about 2020. What a terrible year. Will it ever end? Why is this year doing that to us? You know, I'm not a believer in um, the restrictions of the calendar in that way. That said, I'm glad to see it go. Uh, here's to 2021. There's a vaccine coming, more than one. I will take that jab any way I can get it. I haven't seen my family in a year. So, to better times for me and you both. That is all. Thank you for listening, and goodbye. only from rustolium